Good morning, Zionsville Fellowship Church family. I am so glad to be with you this morning uh, in your home or wherever you are viewing this as we continue our study on rediscovering Jesus. If uh, you and I have not met before, my name is Eric Bobbitt. I'm one of the elders here at the church and also serve on the pastoral staff. I so wish uh, that we could all be together this morning. And rather than staring into this camera, I could be looking into your faces and we would be able to share the warmth of personal presence. It's often claimed that more has been written about Jesus of Nazareth than any person who ever lived. His life, his teachings, and his influence have been championed, dissected, and debated for 20 centuries. From among these many voices, our current Sunday series will focus on listening directly to Jesus himself. Frankly, throughout history, some have fallen to the temptation of picking and choosing, of lifting out elements of his story and words in order to create a particular kind of Jesus that might suit their purposes but misses the mark of historical and theological truthfulness. As we trust the Bible and open the Gospel of John together, we will find Jesus' significant statements about his identity. Seven times he declares, I am, and then follows it with a description particular to him. This in and of itself is not unusual for anyone to do. We all possess an identity composed of multiple roles, relationships, and characteristics. I wonder how you would respond if you were asked to describe yourself and had to fill in I am blank seven different times. Through that, you would reveal your unique identity. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Twice in John chapter 8, which we're going to be reading from today, the thought leaders of his day observed Jesus' life. They listened to his enigmatic responses and they were utterly baffled. They asked him these penetrating questions. Who are you? Who do you make yourself out to be? And this might be the most profound question and necessary understanding in human history. Who is Jesus? Now, you might have been introduced to Jesus quite some time ago and think you have a pretty solid response to that question. But do you remember your initial astonishment at his claims, his character, and his conversations? How you marveled at the way he healed and the ease with which he suspended the natural laws. Well, our aim in this study this morning and in the coming weeks is for all of us to listen again with fresh wonder and curiosity. And if you happen to be newer to the Christian faith and learning stories of Jesus for the first time, Please enjoy the process as you uncover an accurate picture of this winsome and unparalleled person. As we hear Jesus describe his identity, it will be unlike anything any of us would say about ourselves. Listen to how he positions himself. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the shepherd the resurrection and the life, the vine, the way, the truth, and the life. 
These metaphors reveal how he uniquely functions to sustain, illuminate, admit, care for, to give life, to make productive, and to guide. And these are staggering claims. Promising to be these not just in his own lifetime, but across all the centuries, in every city, village, and home for every person. Which is why so much has been written about this man. So this morning, we're going to, to discuss his statement, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Our text today is actually just one verse from the Gospel of John. It will be the center point of our study as we launch from it into other scriptural passages. So please turn to John 8, if you have your Bibles with you, and we're going to read verse 12. And the context at this time in Jesus' life was he was in the city of Jerusalem where the Feast of Booths was being celebrated. So let's read John 8, 12, in which Jesus reveals a stunning statement about his identity. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These, this verse provides us with our outline. We're going to trace it through John's writings and then through the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here's our outline of Jesus' teaching. Jesus is the light of the world. His followers will not walk in darkness. They will have the light of life. So first, let's consider Jesus is the light of the world. And we'll begin with this notion of light. We all intuitively know what it is, but it might be a bit elusive to define. An official definition uh, from the dictionary goes like this. Light is that form of radiant energy that stimulates the organs of sight, having wavelengths ranging from 3,900 to 7,700 angstrom units and propagated at a speed of 186,300 miles a second. Of course, Jesus is speaking metaphorically, so when he refers to light, it's not a scientific definition, but one that means mental or spiritual illumination. In this regard, the Bible continually associates the Lord with light. In fact, it's one of the most formative themes in the scriptures. Do you recall the first words spoken by God in the Bible? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. In the pre-structured universe, formless and void, empty, chaotic, and dark, the first thing God brings is light. We can highlight important times in the Bible when God is associated with light. Psalm 104, verse 2 tells us, God, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. God is clothed in light. Daniel 2.22 explains, God knows what it is, excuse me, God knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. 
Darkness is not dark to God at all, for he dwells in light and accessible, as we sang earlier this morning, and it radiates the glory of his character. The psalmist in Psalm 27 is secure in declaring, the Lord is my light and my salvation. During the Exodus, when his people needed guidance and reassurance, God's presence was visibly among them, displayed as light. His glory was demonstrated in a cloud and in a pillar of fire. The New Testament continues this link between the divine and light. The Apostle John emphasizes the theme of light in his writings, as we've already seen in his gospel. And a culminating statement by John is found in his first letter, 1 John 1, 5, God is light. One cannot say it any more plainly and directly than that. Not God represents light, reflects light, values light, resembles light. God is light. 1 Timothy 6, 6 states, God dwells in unapproachable light. And James 1, 7 tells us that God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the source. He is the father of light. It emanates from him. So he does not cast a shadow from another light source. And then when Jesus retreated to the mountain to give a fuller revelation of his person and his nature to his closest disciples, it's described in this way in Matthew 17. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. In the transfiguration, the curtain was pulled back a bit, and what did his followers see? Jesus was manifested as light. When Saul was confronted by the risen Jesus and hears his voice on the Damascus road, Saul is blinded by light and is later commissioned to be a light to the Gentiles. God's identification with light fills the pages of the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation. So it shouldn't startle us that in describing in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, we read in the words of John, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And the city needed no, had no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. The Lord will be the eternal source of light, eliminating the need for any other. Throughout the Bible, God identifies himself with light as a display of his own internal glory. He does not reflect light. It is his identity. So what is Jesus saying about himself when he declares that he's the light of the world? Well, he's claiming that he is God incarnate. God is light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, therefore Jesus is God. And he doesn't say, I am the light of Israel, but he expands it to the entire world. Scholars refer to John 8.12 as being Christo-exclusive and Christo-inclusive. 
saying the light of the world is Christo exclusive in its claim. He exclusively takes primacy over all other lights. He is the singular light of the world. To claim to be the light of the world is a Christo-inclusive claim. His domain extends to the entire cosmos. He includes everyone and everything everywhere. And since God is light, biblical anthropology recognizes that light is not the native possession of man. Jesus wants to extinguish any human confidence or supposed certainty that you and I supply or cause our own light. It only comes from the Lord. So in the first statement of John 8, 12, Jesus announces that he is the light of the world. Next, he turns his attention to us, how our relationship with him determines our connection to light and darkness. The second point in our outline is the next phrase in verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Whoever follows me, Jesus said, will not walk in darkness. The logic of this statement is appealing, since we know that in the physical realm, light dispels darkness. We, we would anticipate that it would do the same thing in the spiritual sphere. Jesus' whole mission was a conflict between light and darkness. Thus, we see John repeatedly drawn to this theme of light. And what do these opposing forces of light and darkness represent? Let's turn to John 3 to discover. John 3, 16 to 21, if you can turn there. And so we are highlighting throughout the book of John how often he uses uh, this theme of Jesus and light. It occurs in 8.12, in that one statement, but he does it throughout the book, and we're going to be looking at, at those places as well. John 3, 16 to 21, follow along. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son... And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly, clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Compelled by love, God sent a rescuer to a desperate world. In verse 19, John employs again the language of light and dark to portray this mission. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus the light has come into the world and now begins judgment. For the people did not appreciate their divine guest. They loved darkness. Why? Because their works were evil. They had inverted loves. Verse 20 tells us that they hated the light. So light represents good. Dark stands for evil. And those of the dark avoid the light. They do not want their deeds and their lives exposed. Fleeing to the light 
to hide in the shadows and cover of the dark is not the response of just a few. The fallen condition of us all, of each person arriving on this planet, is spiritual darkness. We're all burdened with moral deficiency and the corruption of the human heart. Job 12.25 describes our common predicament as they grope in the dark without light. Groping in the dark. Have you ever ventured into a cave? Uh, My wife Jan and I took our five children to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky uh, for a tour and had a great time. And once we were underground, the guides led us to this cavernous room and they said, all flashlights, all lamps, all lights are to be extinguished. And we stood in the silence and in the black. And I did not know that there were levels of darkness. Uh, that there's, I thought just dark's dark. But it was amazing, total, absolute black. And, and the, guard, the guide said, put your hand in front of your face. And absolutely, you could not see anything at all. This is our natural moral and spiritual condition when it comes to seeking and knowing and attaining righteousness before our holy maker who dwells in inaccessible light, burning brighter than staring into our sun. Paul reminds us of our original state in Ephesians 5.8. He says, For at that time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. 1 Colossians 1 says we learn from, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness so that now we share an inheritance of the saints in light. We're born into spiritual darkness. We're groping in a cavern without a single shaft of light. When we say that God is light, uh, we are speaking of his holiness. And the word holy, in its root meaning, refers to other, to separateness. Light is an expression of God's penetrating purity, his moral perfection, and he dwells in inaccessible light. Our senses to see and hear and touch and taste are all designed to bring us in connection with the world and with others so we can understand and share and experience and in some ways to come close God is in unapproachable light, completely other, distinct from his creatures. Humankind has a fascination with light, and in fact, some ancient cultures were so enamored with the sun that they worshipped it. I'm sure you've studied that in school or heard of that before, and this always baffled me, just to think of something so natural and regular as the sun going across the sky would become an object of worship. But studying the idea of that Jesus is the light, uh, I think has helped me to make sense of these sun worshipers. Because if you're a pre-modern person trying to make sense of the world as it's presented to you at face value, at face value, probably its most striking feature is the sun. It's part of this world, but it's above and outside of it. The sun is unchanging. It can be trusted. You order your life by its movements. It provides what is essential, light and heat and growth for plants. It's surrounded by mystery and awe and our dependence upon it. And rather than understanding the sun as an illustration of a higher spiritual being and reality, the creator, 
Their worship only got as far as the physical source of light and life. So God has placed in the sky, in the daily rhythm of your life, a continual reminder of himself. And not as an occasion for idolatry, but for appropriate recognition and wonder. So every day you and I can look to the sky, find the sun, and remember Jesus, the light of the world, and be renewed in our willful dependence on a mysterious, awesome, unchanging source of the essentials for life, whose light is necessary for your spiritual life. But like the sun, if you receive that in full measure, you would be undone and fall flat on your face. So we've been speaking of this conflict between light and darkness, and in this battle of good versus evil, what kind of person is able to dispel the darkness? Well, it requires more than simply acknowledging that Jesus is the light. He tells us it's those who follow him that, not do, that do not walk in darkness. So this requires a relationship of surrender, obedience, and godly imitation to overcome. John Calvin, church reformer, in the 16th century wrote that none will ever present themselves to Christ to be enlightened except those who have known both that this world is darkness and that they themselves are altogether blind. For Christ is not speaking of what he has in common with others, but claims light as uniquely his own. The humility to recognize spiritual need, followed by wholehearted discipleship. This is not a passive undertaking. The verb follow means we're moving. It's dynamic, not static. John calls us in 1 John 1 to walk in the light. To follow the light of Christ is not finding his campfire in the woods and sitting down by it all night. It's a trek of faith. It's walking behind his light that pierces the darkness. We follow his movements, his direction. Jesus in Matthew 4.16 echoes the prophet Isaiah, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then from that time on, it says in Matthew 4, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we dwell in a land covered with the shadow of death. The light has come. We cannot be passive. There's an action required, and Jesus says, repent. So there's a moral element in transferring from the domain of darkness to light. We choose to turn away from the deeds of darkness and to actively follow Jesus. Not walking in darkness means that light influences our conduct in noticeable ways. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Paul exhorts the Philippians, Shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So, given the option, who would prefer the dark? And surrounded by the black of night, you're awakened by the sounds of intruder. It's past midnight in a sketchy part of town. You're walking. You're lost. You're unprotected. Who is drawn to darkness? Who wants to be in those kinds of places? 
Well, Scripture tells us about two types of people who prefer, who favor the darkness. First of all, those who are sleeping. Romans 13, 11 to 13, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We are children of light. Wake up. This is not the time to sleep. Jesus says, or Paul is saying here, be done with the unsavory acts of the nighttime. It's not only those who are asleep, but also those who are hiding who relish the dark. Can you remember a time when you were rebelliously someplace where you weren't supposed to be, maybe a friend, and you snuck off to a forbidden place, and uh, now you're about to be caught? You had to conceal yourselves and that infamous desperate whisper, quick, hide. At that point, you needed the dark. You sought it. You were glad to be enveloped by it. But those who follow Jesus will not walk in darkness. We've learned that the light represents goodness and the dark is a metaphor for evil. And Isaiah warns us to always distinguish between the two. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So we can see from that, additionally, there's another metaphorical use of light. In the Bible, light also refers to truth. When light enters darkness, one can see reality and understanding of the way things are and the truth were veiled in darkness, but they're now visible. Light stands for truth, wisdom, knowledge, darkness for ignorance, error, falsehood, deception. Psalm 119, 105 reminds us that the good way, the secure path, is illumined by God's communication to us. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. His word is truth, which shines as a beacon on our journey through a shadowy, obscured land. Isaiah 5.9, excuse me, Ephesians 5.9, speaks of these two metaphorical uses of light that we've talked about. Paul writes, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So good versus evil and true versus false. So reviewing what we've discovered thus far, Jesus is the light of the world and those who follow him will not walk in darkness. Well, if he is light, what is he illumining? He brings light metaphorically in two ways. Jesus is the light that illumines our deeds. Those transformed by Christ through faith love the light, come to it, and reflect his goodness. While those who practice evil hide from the light, for they hate it. Jesus is the light that also illumines truth. 
The light is knowledge and wisdom shining into the darkness of ignorance, spiritual deception, and falsehood. Which leads us to our third statement in John 8, 12. They will have the light of life. So I don't know if you're able to keep track of these three. I'm the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, and they will have the light of life. The light of life. Jesus promises if we follow him, he will not only guide us away from darkness, but also into true life. Let's turn to the beginning of John's gospel where he introduces this theme. Gospel, uh, yeah, gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and then verse 14 as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word who is God, in the beginning made all things. And his identity is made clear to us in Verse 14, it's the Son of God who became flesh. So Jesus is the Word, full of glory, the light that overcomes the darkness. Now, the opening verses of John establish that the Word authored life. He created the natural order, all physical life, and he also brings spiritual life. In verse 6, two terms, life and light, are placed side by side. In Jesus was the life, And the life was the light of men. Jesus is the true light, providing illumination that reveals a special kind of life in him. Last Sunday, Drew taught on Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And this life, he told us, is an everlasting one, beginning now, in which we will know and enjoy Jesus forever. In Jesus' own words, in his prayer, In John 17, 3, we hear what eternal life is. This is eternal life, Jesus prayed, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Everlasting life is distinguished by not just quantity of time, but also by the quality of a relational life. And this life, knowing and being known by Jesus eternally, is the light of men, or in the words of uh, John 8, 12, the light of life. What will bring hope to a darkened world? New life in Jesus. To trust and to have an intimate, loving connection with our Creator. This is the life that will enlighten the world. He reveals Himself in His kindness and graciousness and also in His moral beauty and perfection. John 1.14 reminded us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. His character expresses itself in mercy, love, forgiveness. This is grace. He perfectly possesses justice, holiness, judgment. That's truth. Both grace and truth exist in infinite perfection in Jesus Christ. And when I come to understand that this is the true 
and living God, full of grace and truth, I now find myself trapped. Because I long for God's acceptance, his mercy, and his compassion, which he desires to abundantly share with me. Yet he is light, and I dwell in shadow and darkness, because I've rebelled and chosen disobedience, and I realize that I deserve God's judgment. And I cannot attain what I must. I cannot manufacture a way out. And those of you that are followers of Christ will remember a time or times when that was brought home to you in penetrating ways. I remember in my own life, uh, halfway through college, when that became very clear to me. And I really realized I'm trapped with a holy God who is light and I dwell in the shadows, and that's what I have chosen. And then when you find yourself and you're convicted that that is the truth of your situation before a holy God, you turn and you see the word become flesh on a Roman cross, suffering and dying in your place. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, and the son Jesus offered himself. Edward Clink contemporary theologian, explains it this way. The irony of the gospel is that it's only when I admit to being what I'm not supposed to be that I can be declared what I do not deserve to be. And this new reality becomes the path upon which I am intended to walk. The irony of the gospel is that it's only when I admit to being what I'm not supposed to be Commit to being what I'm not supposed to be, that I can be declared what I do not deserve to be. This life is the light of men, and this is what most needs to be illumined. So we began this morning with the question, who is Jesus? The Pharisees boldly asked him, who are you making yourself out to be? And based on his own words, Jesus is the light of the world. So in closing... We understand that this has immediate and personal implications for each one of us. Our nation and the world has never experienced a time like this. Isolation, uncertainty, disrupted rhythms, loss of jobs, health, and life. We are literally a people living in the shadow of death. And while there are many things that our society can and needs to learn, as Christians, we'd be wise to view this as a season of personal refinement and testing and cleansing. It is time for us to respond to the invitation to be illumined, to turn from darkness to light. For Scripture exhorts us to believe in the light, to come to the light, to love the light, to walk in the light. The New Testament uses all of those phrases as our response to Jesus, the light of the world, to believe, come, love, and walk. Jesus is the light of the world. So we're to come to the life that he offers and let his light lead our way. We'll conclude this morning with uh, our prayer from Psalm 43, a portion of that psalm. The psalmist there is in his own battle with darkness, and he reaches beyond himself for what he needs. And he asks the Lord to send something. So that's what we're going to ask this morning. Would you join me in prayer, please?
Lord, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation in my God. In the name of the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close our time together um, by singing. And this song draws from the verse um, that we've just looked at. It says, lift high the name of Jesus, our light. No other name on earth can save. No other name can raise a soul to life. And then the response uh, in this song is, oh, sing my soul and tell all he's done till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory. So let's sing this together. And sing, oh, sing my soul. No, sing my soul and tell all he's done till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory. Lift high the name of Jesus, of Jesus, our King. Make known the power of His grace, the beauty of His peace. Remember how His mercy reached as we cried out to Him. He lifted us to solid ground, to freedom from our sin. Oh, sing my soul. And tell all he's done Till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory Lift high the name of Jesus Of Jesus our light No other name on earth can save Can raise us soul to life he opens up our eyes to see the harvest he has brought. We labor in his fields of grace as he leads sinners home. Oh, sing my soul and tell all he's done till the earth and heavens are glory oh sing and oh sing my soul and tell all he's done till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory amen well as we've done uh, over the last several weeks, let's take some time for fellowship now. Um, and this is especially important while we're separated uh, physically. So let's take time, uh, think of a brother or sister in Christ who you can reach out to and encourage, whether it's by um, call or text or email. 
Um, and also think of a neighbor or a friend uh, or a family member who doesn't know the Lord um, and reach out to them as well. Um, now let me close us with a benediction. Now may Christ, who is the light of the world, dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God.